Hello, my name is Nicole. The Old Testament reading is found in Hosea 11, 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the further they went away from me. They kept sacrificing to the balls, and they burned incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms. But they did not know it was I that healed them. I led them with bands of human kindness, with cords of love. I treated them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Annalise. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 8, 14 through 17. All who are led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you you are adopted as his children. With his spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ if we really suffer with him, so that we can also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Hello and good morning. My name is Melissa. Please stand if you're able. The New Testament reading is found in Mateo 6, 25 through 26. I'll be reading in Spanish translation, but you can find it English on the screen. Por eso les digo, no se preocupan por su vida, que comerán o beberán, ni por su cuerpo, cómo se vestirán. No tiene la vida más valor que la comida y el cuerpo más que la ropa. Mira los pájaros en el cielo. No siembran, ni cosechan, ni almacenan en graneros. Sin embargo, el Padre Celestial las alimenta. ¿No valen ustedes mucho más que ellas? La palabra de Dios. The word of the Lord. Would you please remain standing with me as we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who reveals himself to us. Would you continue to reveal yourself to us here this morning? Make yourself known. Appear in the ways that you want to appear to each of us individually and to us collectively as a church. We look to you, our great hope and our source. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. Those of you who are here in the room and those of you who are watching online, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to be with you this morning. Three weeks ago, we began a series entitled, Who is God? And the series is actually going to take us from January all the way into May. And it's organized around really the central confession of the Christian faith, that we believe that there is one God, but that God exists eternally in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that the three are one and the one is three and we can't fully wrap our minds around it. This is why we call it a bit of a mystery, not in the sense of like it's a clue that we have to figure out, 
but really an invitation to come in and explore and to get to know the depths and the beauty and the wonder of our God. The doctrine that calls this together is called the doctrine of the Trinity, one God in three persons. And the first three weeks, or the first few weeks of this series, we're following kind of along an early summary of the Christian faith called the Nicene Creed. Some of you may be familiar with it. If you're not, it's posted like on a big pillowcase banner out in our lobby. And the Nicene Creed is one of the oldest sort of summaries of the Christian faith. It was initially written in 325 AD by a little over 300 church leaders coming together to say, what is the church? What have Christians always everywhere believed about our God? And it's organized in three parts, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So our series is organized that way. And this first part on God the Father is following the beginnings of that creed, which says we believe in one God, the Father. So last week, we talked specifically about that phrase, one God. What does it mean to declare that there is one God and recognizing that he, in declaring he is one, is to declare that he is sufficient and he's worthy of all of our love. We don't split our love and allegiance between multiple gods, but give all of our love, all of our affection, all of our allegiance to the one God. And today we're going to move on to that next part where it says, Father, we believe in one God, the Father. And what does it mean for us to call God the Father. In the ancient world, to claim that there was only one God, in the midst of a polytheistic world where everybody worshipped sort of a pantheon of deities, to say that there was only one God would have been met with a host of objections. Like, no, 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 you can't say that. Look at all these gods. Look at all the ones that we have. No, I don't believe that. In the ancient world, that would have been a radical claim, met with all kinds of objections. In our world, To call God Father is met with similar resistance. It may be the hardest part of the creed for a lot of us. For many, the term Father is fraught with heartbreak and pain. Your dad or a father figure or someone you looked to in that way was either absent or maybe disconnected, maybe abusive, maybe just neglectful. Possibly just harsh, and being in their presence was just hard. Maybe when you think of Father, the emotion that comes up is one of disappointment, where they were either unwilling or unable to meet your hopes or your expectations for who that person was going to be in your life. Maybe for them it was because their own wounds never really fully healed or they had their own challenges, their own sort of uh, struggles in life that they couldn't overcome. And unfortunately, that sort of spilled out on to you. For others, the term father is connected with grief. I know so many that in the last year, you're mourning the loss of your own dad. For some, it's the grief of the unfulfilled dream to be a dad. I'm going to pull it together, I promise. For some, you're grieving the death of a child. And so to be a parent has been marked by pain. Or maybe you're grieving a deep fissure 
that has developed between you and your own children. And so to think about being dad, being a parent is wrought with grief right now. For others, though, it's the opposite. Like when you think of the term father, you find great joy, great affection, great sort of memories. And when you think about dad, a smile comes to your face. Or maybe you've been in that position where you didn't feel that way before, but God has revealed himself to you in a unique way that all of a sudden there's a different association with that term. But for many, it may be that when you think of dad, all of these wonderful memories come, of course, with some qualification because even the best dads among us fail. For others, you're like your only context is like TV dads and dad jokes and dad jeans. Do they have those? I don't know if there are, are those or not. But for most, we can say pretty honestly, it's pretty mixed. For me, as you've heard me share before, my relationship with my own biological dad has brought probably the deepest pain that I've experienced in this life. And sermons like this are still difficult for me to work through as I know that the Lord is still healing me of the wounds that I've experienced and how those have marred my image of God as father. And at the same time, being a dad, being the dad of three girls, uh, has brought unspeakable joy into my life unspeakable joy. But even that is mixed with regrets and worry and exhaustion a lot of times, you know, just all of that. There's a lot of words um, in conversation. For others, the resistance to the idea of God as father doesn't come maybe out of those deep emotional places personally, but arises out of the fact that father is a gendered term. Why father? Why not mother? A concern may arise from oppression that has happened uh, to women in history and in the church. And whether you're coming from kind of either end and kind of tackling and wrestling with this idea of God of Father, these are serious and significant concerns, ones that are appropriate and need to be named. And some, understandably, kind of in the midst of those tensions, propose abandoning the term altogether. Like, let's just not use that anymore. Let's not call God Father. But the truth is that every term has its challenges. That whatever terms we decide to use, we're going to run into the limits of language when we're trying to explain our limitless God. We're always going to come up with something that just doesn't quite match correctly. And furthermore, our text, the Holy Scriptures, and the tradition of the church has used this term father over and over and over and over and over again for thousands of years. Jesus himself in the gospels, between the four gospels, uses the term father nearly 150 times. Paul uses another 40. So it's over and over again, it's in our text, it's in our tradition. Of course, it's not exhaustive. Isaiah frequently will pull on the image of mother to describe God. At one point, he uses the image of a mother nursing her child to describe God's affection for his kids. Another time, he just uses the image of a mother comforting her children in their pain, in their grief, as an image to describe God. But father is the predominant term. It's the term that we find most often. So what we have to do is sort of ask the question, why? Why did the ancients, why did our ancestors, why did they use that term? What were they trying to communicate? with that term? Why did they choose that? Why did God choose to reveal himself to them using that term? And then to try to recover the sense of that, 
when we're thinking about our text and our traditions. That's what we're going to try to do this morning. Sound good? All right, well, that means we've got to get a little nerdy, though, uh, to start with and talk about ancient Near Eastern cultures. Uh, and I know this is what you wanted when you were coming to church today. You're like, I really hope we talk about old things. Um, but here we go. In the ancient Near East, the context of the Old Testament, and in the Greco-Roman world, the context of the New Testament, both of those settings are patriarchal settings. That is the cultural setting for the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is not unique to the Bible. Nearly every civilization in history until the modern era was a patriarchal setting, a patriarchal culture. And one of the challenges in reading the Bible is to try to learn to recognize culture and understand culture, but not canonize the culture. To not sort of then take that culture as like, this is the culture that's supposed to be everywhere at all times. No, this is the culture that God entered himself into and revealed himself to us through. We have to understand it and recognize it, be careful not to canonize it. Patriarchal culture is present, but it's not prescribed. Oftentimes it's actually subverted. We talked about this in our series in Galatians several months ago. But the culture is the vehicle through which God communicates to his people. God met Israel and he met Judah and he met the disciples in their world so that they could understand him. And so we're trying to understand the culture so we can understand how God's revealing himself in it. The Bible is specifically set within a societal structure known as patriarchal tribalism. A cultural anthropologist named Marshall Solins described this this way. He says, a patriarchal tribalism involves a progressively inclusive series of groups that emanate from a patriarchal leader. So you can see a graphic here on the screen that comes from one of my professors, Sandy Richter, in her amazing book, The Epic of Eden, kind of describing this in Israel's setting. At the very center of the circle, you see the patriarch's house or the language underneath it, the Beit Av. In other words, the center of society for any person was their father's house. That was the center of society. It was the center of life. The center of their world was their experience in the father's house. The father's house was then connected to a larger group called the clan. The clan was connected to a larger group known as the tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then those tribes all together made up the nation. But everything began and emanated out from the patriarch's house, from the father's house, outward from there. Everything you could say radiated from the father. The father was the central figure. And so because of that, someone would have, in the ancient world, would have perceived their father and experienced their father as a source, as maybe even the source. In this world, the image of father would have been the most personal and powerful metaphor available in that society for God to use to describe himself through. And what I want to do this morning is describe at least five ways that are theologically rich and I think personally significant for us in thinking about this image of God as the central figure. The father is the central figure and the source. The first is this, is that they would have understand the father to be the source of life. To say God is Father is to say that God is the source of life. We're going to say more about this in two weeks when we talk about the phrase maker of heaven and earth. But in ancient Near Eastern understandings of biology, which we're going to say very little about this morning and you can have conversations about it later. 
But in their understandings of biology, life originated in and with the father. And so it was not a big jump for them to say if life originates in and with the father, it was not a big jump to then say, well, God, who's the creator, is our father. Malachi says it this way. Isn't there one father for all of us? One God who created us. To declare God to be the father is to declare God to be the source of life, the source of our life, the source of all life, the source of your life. In other words, what that means for us is that our existence, your existence, is not an accident. Your existence is not a cosmic coincidence. It didn't just happen. You are here ultimately because God, your Father, gave you life. And yes, there's a lot of other things that went into play. But ultimately, to declare God as Father is to say, I am here because God the Father gave me life. He breathed breath into your lungs. To declare God as Father is to say he's the source of all life, including mine, including yours. He has given life to us. The second indication saying that God is Father is the Father is the source of our identity, the source of life and the source of identity. When you're looking through the Old Testament and the New Testament, oftentimes the Bible, when it's introducing characters to us for the very first time, what we're told first about them is is that they are a son or a daughter of somebody. What we're told first of all is who their father is. That when the scriptures are introducing us to people, they'll say their name and then tell us, who their dad is. Genesis chapter 24, even before he finished speaking, Rebecca, well, who's Rebecca? Well, Rebecca is the daughter of Bethuel. And who's Bethuel? The son of Milcah, the wife of Nehor, Abraham's brother. Why did we need to know all of that? Couldn't we just say Rebecca was coming out with a water jar? No, we needed to say who she is and who she is is connected to who her dad is. We see this in all the genealogies. We see even the genealogy of Jesus opening up in Matthew chapter one, a record of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. And later on in Matthew at his baptism, behold, this is my son, the beloved whom I love. Listen to him. Even some of our great literature picks up on this. C.S. Lewis famously writes that we are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve identifying humans in that way. I think it was probably 800 or so years ago on the border of England and Scotland, there were some guys sitting around in a field talking about someone named Robert. They were like, well, which Robert are you talking about? Jack's son. And then before you know it, it was Robert Jackson. And, you know, I have a last name now. <laughs> These things just sort of happen in this way because communally we're known to others by our father, in those settings. In those settings, you've been known to others by your father. Who you are was largely connected with whose you are. To identify someone is to identify their father and to identify then something about them. Identity, meaning, significance, purpose, vocation. In the ancient world, all of these things were derived from someone's father. 
And so to declare God to be Father is to declare that God is the source of our identity. He, and he alone, as Aaron was saying earlier, is the source of our identity. In other words, our identity is not determined by all the things that we try to identify ourselves with in this world. That yes, those are part of who we are, but at our very core, who we are is determined by whose we are. And we are God's sons and daughters. Our identity is not determined by what we've done or what we've not done. Our identity has not been determined by where we came from, by how much education we completed, by how many accomplishments we have on our resume, by our successes or by our failures, or by our gender, or our sexuality, or our race, or our ethnicity, or our nationality, or our socioeconomic status, or our marital status, or our Facebook status. It's not determined by any of those things. You are not even who others say that you are. You are not who your biological father says you are. You're not even who you say you are. What you believe to be true about yourself. We do not live as followers of Jesus. We do not live self-defined lives. You are first and foremost above anything else. You are a daughter of God. You are a son of God. You are a child of the creator and king of the universe. That is who you are. Everything else is just details. But who you are is a son, a daughter of God. This is why Romans, and Paul writing in Romans says that we have been given a spirit of adoption. That we as God's kids might call out Abba, Father. That this is how we're even taught to pray to our God. Third thing that we see in this idea is that to say that God is Father is to say that the Father is the source of all of our relationships. In that world, your connection to society, your connection to everything that was happening in and around you, that connection came through your Father's house. It came through your father. Remember that graphic from earlier, your connection to the clan, to the tribe, and to the nation began with your connection to the father. You were a son or daughter of the father and then therefore part of this household, therefore part of this clan, therefore part of this tribe, therefore part of this nation. And in the Old Testament, God is most often portrayed as father in relationship to Israel. Israel is the one who's described in the Old Testament as his firstborn. It says this, Exodus 4, 22, then, to, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my oldest son. And I said to you, let my son go so he could worship me. Let my son go so he can be with me. To declare God as father is to declare that he exists in relationship. Is to declare he exists in relationship eternally between the father, the son, and the spirit. And he exists in relationship with us. God is not a solitary figure. He is not Aristotle's unmoved mover. God is not an undefined generic force. He's the father, not the force. Sorry, Star Wars. He is the father. He is a person. One God in three persons. Therefore, God is personal. 
He's not impersonal. God is personal. The Father has always existed in relationship and since creation has always longed for relationship with his kids. From the garden to the new garden, God is the God who's continually described as the one who makes his home with people. This is who he is. He wants to make his home with you. He wants to be in relationship with you. The scriptures declare over and over and over again that he already knows you and he already loves you. And then the invitation is for you to know him and to love him, not to earn his knowledge of you and not to earn his love of you. He already knows you and he already loves you. And his invitation is into relationship that you might know and love him as well. The fourth thing to declare God as father is to say that the father is the source of all of our provision. The father is the source of provision. In that world, the father, the patriarch, was, one's pers- was a person's link to all of the legal and economic structures of the nation. That you linked into society and to all of its resources through your father. Which is why the loss of a patriarch, the loss of a father, was such a devastating thing in the ancient world. Because it severed your connection to all of society's relationships. This is why the Old Testament is particularly concerned for orphans and widows and strangers. Those who are not connected to a father's house. If you're not connected to a father's house, you don't have connection to all of the resources society has to provide for you. So the scriptures are saying over and over and over again, pay attention to those who are on the margins. Take care of the orphans and widows and strangers and bring them into your house. Make them a part of your father's house because this is what God the Father has done for you. A father in the ancient world is one who's responsible for the well-being of his entire household. So declare God as father is to trust him to provide our basic needs. Is to declare him to be the source of our provision. Matthew 6, Jesus says, look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow seed or harvest grain or gather crops into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them and aren't you worth much more than they are? Aren't you? worth much more than they are. Elsewhere, Jesus is in a conversation, he says, if human parents know how to give good gifts to their kids, then how much more would the father give his good gifts to us? The declaration that God is father and that he is a source of our provision actually makes it possible to live all of our lives with gratitude, with contentment, with generosity, trusting that God is the one who provides for us. And the fifth and final thing, to declare that God is Father is declare that God is the source of our salvation. He is the one who rescues and redeems us. In the Old Testament, if a member of a household, if a member of a father's house fell into despair, if they suffered under poverty, death of a family member, war, injustice, or even sin and rebellion, if they fell into despair in any way, either by their own fault or by the fault of something else, or just simply by life happening in a fallen world, it was the father's responsibility to go and rescue them. 
It was the father's responsibility to leverage all of their resources and even to risk his own life in order to bring his children home and restore them to his household. It would have been the father's unique responsibility to say, I have to put everything on the line because one of my kids is lost and I need to go and find them and rescue them and bring them home. This is portrayed in our Old Testament reading in Hosea 11.1 when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. God is most often portrayed in the Old Testament as Israel's father as it relates to rescuing Israel out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 1.30 says it this way, the Lord your God is going before you and he will fight for you just as he fought for you in Egypt while you just watched. And as you saw him even do in the desert, bringing you all the way home throughout your entire journey until you reach this very place, the Lord your God has carried you just as a parent carries a child. This is how the father has carried his people to declare God as father is to declare that he saves, that he is the one who comes to his kid's rescue when they're in trouble, in trouble. that he's the one who leverages all of his resources and even gives up his own life to save us and bring us home. This is what the Father has done in and through Jesus the Son. We have to remember that whatever the Trinity does, the Trinity does together. Whatever the Trinity does, the Trinity does together. And so this is what the Father has done in and through Jesus Christ as he's put everything on the line to rescue us, his kids. And this is what the Father continues to do in and through the spirits. He heals us. He frees us, he restores us, he cares for us, and he carries us home. This is what he does. To say that God is the Father, to say he is the only one who can carry me home. I can't get there on my own. Instead, I trust the Father to carry me. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? So we're gonna to prepare to come to the table this morning. This table is our Father's table. It's the table that sits in the center of our Father's house. And it reminds us that God is the one who rescues us. He's the one who redeems us. And he's the one that when we have been prodigal-like, kills the fattened calf and sets a table for us. But our God goes even further and he gives his own life to rescue us and to bring us to his table. Lord, restore unto us this image of Father as we feast with you today in Jesus' name.